The Jungian psychologist James Hillman once wrote, sooner or later, something seems to call us onto a particular path. You may remember this something as a signal moment in childhood, when an urge, out of nowhere, struck like an enunciation. This is what I must do. This is what I've got to have. This is who I am. The idea goes all the way back to Plato, who wrote that each one of us has a spirit, or daimon, who is there before our birth and guides us invisibly through our life, sometimes dragging us by the hair when need be to take us where we were destined to go. In 1974, that spirit seized Philippe Petit and dragged him onto a taut metal wire between the twin towers of New York's World Trade Center. It also laid its claim upon James Marsh, the master filmmaker who created Man on Wire, and rewarded him with an Oscar for his patience and persistence. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with James Marsh. There are films that age, you know, very poorly with time and that sort of wilt and the petals fall off and, and you sort of wonder what it is that so captivated you. But I sat down last night and rewatched Man on Wire with my wife and, um, and I had loved the film, you know, when I first saw it. And then I saw it again. We share Igor Martinovich. Uh, wow, he shot the 7.5 for me, right? So, oh, wow. yes, um, so when I went to make that film, I, ha I had sort of recon I had connected with Igor and I had rewatched your film. And, and I loved it again. But last night I was so, um, I don't know, just profoundly moved by... It's such a lasting document, and, and I guess the sort of falling of the Twin Towers and everything that's happened made it even more powerful. And I also sensed and found myself sort of obsessively wondering about, you know, the craft that had gone into it. So maybe we can begin by, um, tell us the, the kind of the birth of this film and how it first begins to take hold of you and how you put, put together the pieces of it. Well, it's a really interesting question. I mean, firstly, I guess you watch the film in the sort of shadow of the anniversary of the 9-11 disaster. So September is always a time when people sometimes reconnect with that film and revisit it. And, you know, so interesting timing at your end. And I guess, you know, that that's the starting point for the project, unfortunately or fortunately, um, because I was in New York at the time during the disaster that day I was there I shot footage for the BBC around ground zero that night and the following day so I was really close to it you know in all kinds of ways also I know someone who was killed in that disaster as well um, so it was very personal and you know, to be in New York at that time as a New Yorker I guess I was by then it was a profound experience and unique experience you know in a terrible experience and um, so that's, that's the starting point, I think, for how most people engage with the film as completed. Um, and the film sort of came mostly from a producer called Simon Chin, who'd been uh, sort of in touch with Philippe Petit um, and courting him over uh, quite a long period of time. I'd read the children's book to my young children at the time and was sort of enamored with the story, but didn't sort of make the connection that Simon had made, obviously, to what it now means. Well, you know, obviously I made that connection, but I didn't see it as a film. So when Simon 
approached me. Um, it was in the, I think, the summer of 2005, um, maybe the autumn, anyway, winter of 2005. Um, I immediately saw the possibilities of the story post 9-11. Um, and my main um, sort of reaction was, well, this is maybe the, one of the few stories you could tell about those buildings that didn't involve their destruction. Uh, and I made it very clear from the start that I wasn't interested in showing any footage of that destruction or, or making any reference to that event, because it felt to me that what Philippe had done, firstly, historically, was very far away from that event, and secondly, the purity of what he did <clears throat> was not corrupted by what happened to 9-11. It was sort of sanctified, if you like, by Beautiful, beautifully put. If that's the right word to use, and so, so the film. Once I mentioned this, I, I thought saw it straight away. I immediately knew that it was a brilliant story for where I was in New York and what I'd experienced by being in New York at the time of that disaster. Which I can't tell you what a day that was. I mean, you know, everyone was aware of it one way or another, but to be there, as I was living in Brooklyn at the time, I, you know, I felt the tremors of the of the second tower fall. I saw the, the second one fall and the first one I felt the tremors of. So that imprint was so powerful. And I guess taking some of those feelings forward to the film was quite significant to how it turned out because it became a story that you felt its significance. If you got this story, if you told it correctly, there's no way you could ever do anything to offset the pain of that event for the people who were directly involved and indirectly involved. What you could do is offer a story about the best part of us that Philippe represented. He embodies something of the way we have to push our boundaries, the way we have to make things beautiful just for their own sake. What Philippe did during the walk was in some sense completely pointless but completely beautiful, or beautiful only for its own sake, as a performance. And, and, and beauty often is pointless, right? I mean, that's one, that's one of the, the sort of interesting... By, by definition, right? And, yeah, and, and, I, and it was so, you know, when, um, you know, his comrade begins recalling it and suddenly is just overwhelmed with that emotion of what it was like, you know, I think we all, as an audience, suddenly are move to that same extent, which is the useless power, but it, but it's the most necessary thing in the world, beauty too, right? It well, makes, it gives time, life yes, It's a gift as well. He's not doing it, he's doing it, obviously there's a solipsism to it and a narcissism to it, you could say as well, but actually what he's doing is a gift to the people who are there at the time. Uh, and it's a beautiful gift of surprise. And imagine that, imagine being one of those people down there looking up and seeing that on the day. What a remarkable, and it was it's the exact opposite of 9-11. You know, what, what, you, what I began to discover as I began to think about the film was, well, this is a kind of criminal conspiracy. You know, that's the way the film unfolds, is a kind of caper movie. And that felt, the tone of that felt the way that Philippe understood it. You know, that's how he saw it, as a kind of criminal conspiracy, and a criminal act, which he loves the idea of that. And so to tell the film in that with that tone was the right choice, I think, to make it into... That's his playful adventure. With a caper. Almost, a caper. A caper, exactly. But what you've got essentially, you know, and the film resonates, I guess, potentially this way too, is a bunch of foreigners casing out 9 you know, the, the, the World Trade Center, which has just been finished, 
to to do something to it, you know. And what they wanted to do to something was to humanise it. You know, what, what Philippe did, I think, in a general sense, when he did that, the, the, the buildings weren't well-loved in New York at the time. They're very imposing. They're very sort of minimalist. You know, they're very brutal in a way, and they dominate the whole of Manhattan. When I was living in New York, I'd get my bearings from the Twin Towers. Where are they? Okay, that's south. You know, when you come up a subway, what, you know, where are my bones? Oh, there's the Twin Towers down there. I know where I am. So they're sort of, they, but they weren't beloved by any means at the time. And maybe they weren't ever. But what Philippe did was he, he brought them to a human scale. He said, well, guess what? I can conquer these towers. I, I, a little man like me can go up there and, and transform them into, into an artwork where I am the center of the towers, you know. So that was part of his thinking, I think, too, to kind of humanize these buildings. Um, and the conspiracy is rather sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of hapless. You know, the people he recruits, um, you know, his, his loyal his loyal retainer, Jean-Louis, who does most of the kind of technical planning, is very reliable. The bunch of characters he comes across in New York who are kind of self-selecting, only a certain kind of person is going to be a part of this kind of caper. The bumblers, the, the bumblers. Well, you know, one of them's, you know, got a bit of an ongoing weed habit. The other's not particularly reliable. And so he's got this, so it is a kind of classic caper film, a heist movie, if you like. And the great beauty of a heist movie is they're not going to steal something, they're going to give something, you know. It's all the wrong way, everything's the wrong way around in the story. So they do all this in order to, to give this beautiful gift of performance. So I love all these aspects you begin to kind of really relish as you're planning a film. And you, you realize this is a real burden of responsibility to get this right, because if you get this right, somehow you're creating a document that stands in opposition to this foul and evil thing that you've personally witnessed that's changed the world in almost every single way for the worse. You know, the aftermath of 9-11 and what then happened in world politics was all, I think, you know, terrible in one way or another. So this story kind of... The, the, the film becomes a gift, just like Philip's walk was a, Philippe's walk was a gift. The film becomes the, sort of representing that gift to the world, I think, in a fundamental sense. I, th I hope so, in a way, and I hope also, you know, it's something, what's remarkable about the idea of it, you know, if you were to ponder that morning and look up at those buildings, look up that man as he's about to step on that wire, who do you think is going to survive the longest, you know, the man or the, or the buildings? The unexpected so, fragility, right? Well, in exactly, a, in a, of something that seems so solid and compared to this little man up there dancing, literally, on this wire. Um, and so making the film wasn't always easy. I mean, the, the big, the big sort of challenge was was Philippe himself, who's not the easiest man to deal with. I mean, he's very protective of his story, and very jealously guards it. And I wasn't the first filmmaker to go along and and try and petition him. I think my timing was good, and he, he, I think he liked me. You know, that was that was part of it. He's telling the story to me in the film. I'm the audience. I'm sitting in front of him. And I think, you know, our relationship as we spent a year squabbling and arguing and drinking and talking about this project allowed him to be, I think, the performer he wanted to be during the interview, which is key to the film's tone and success, is allowing him to, to be himself. You know, you may not want him to run around the room and show you things, but I really did want that. I thought, this is great. You know, when he proposed that he was going to not always stay, sit in the chair, I, I actively encouraged him to perform the, the the story, which he wanted to do, but not only to perform it, because I thought performance is what he does. There had to be an intimate right. sense of talking to me as a person and telling me this story, along with these rather more playful, 
and sort of eccentric digressions into hiding behind curtains and running around the room and doing the things he did. Um, so so, so can, I, can I interrupt with sort of two craft questions like that, that sort of drill into the specifics of that? Like, one, I'm curious about the process of courting him. Um, because I too have had that experience where, you know, there is this, you know, this sort of the pursuit of someone. And then what I also, you know, what I think people don't often recognize about documentaries is they require a performance every bit as sort of significant as is required in a feature film with actors. It's the performance of self in this case, but you have to sort of maneuver, manipulate, cajole, bully, whatever it takes to get the person to be who they are in the most authentic and dynamic sense. So how did you go about it? That's the essence, I think, of what we do. And I'm glad you call it that because some people kind of shy away from that notion. But of course, everyone is, is, is presenting a version of themselves and you try and both break that down sometimes or indeed support the mythical version they're offering, the better to understand the real person that lurks behind it. And I, you know, I know your film operation at Odessa pretty well. I imagine that there was quite a lot of courtship of some sort or another going on there. I mean, it was a remarkable rogues gallery of people that you managed to, I mean, Tony, for example, is a performance in Odessa. It's a performance you allow him to have, and by that, he reveals so much about himself by, by you giving him the, the sense of control, you know, the sense of it, not the reality of it, but the sense of it. And that's sort of what you do with people like Philippe. You give them the sense that they're collaborating with you and they have a certain amount of control over what you're doing. It's not, it's not substantial, and nor is it actually real, because ultimately, you and I know that the cutting room is where... It's constructed. Right. A documentary is literally constructed. It's not, you know, even a verite film, or especially a verite film, is constructed that way. It's what, you know, Wiseman called his movies reality fictions. And Wiseman is the purest filmmaker that I know in the documentary realm. And he labels his films that way. So fuck knows what we're doing, you know. Or indeed, um, indeed. Uh, but, but, you know, so in a sense, that is what we're doing. And that performance element, that idea of allowing people to offer you a version of themselves with that sort of idea that you need to get to the truth of them too and you need to unpick that a bit. Um, so that, in his case, you know, that courtship was endless dinners, quite a lot of drinking, um, a lot of talking, a lot of being around him when he rehearsed for the war. I go to, he lived in Chacan in upstate New York. I go up there for days on end. I sort of literally, he literally locked me in his barn for like a day at a time and talk, talk, talk. And often his ideas were, were kind of not very good. In fact, often they were pretty terrible. But I had to allow him to offer them, you know, in order to, to sometimes humour them. And occasionally, in the case of the performance, to embrace them and encourage them. Um, but that, that trick, or it's not, trick's the wrong word to use, that psychology of trust, and it is trust, and it has to be trust, where the person does trust you. And I, I always feel you have to honour that trust, you know, as best you can. But at the same time, the bigger responsibility is towards the film. So I've made films, and I'm sure you have too, where you've courted someone, they've accepted you at face value, and you ultimately know that what they're telling you is going to damn them somehow or other. And I guess you encourage that because you think that's the truth. And then you have that awkward outcome where... You know, the person has given you something, not really knowing 
the extent of what you know around what they know and how you contextualize that. This wasn't, Man on Wire wasn't like that. Man on Wire was a film where everyone told their story without that sense of me knowing where they're going to look maybe slightly different to an audience and they look to themselves here. Um, and that was true, I think, of all the contributors who, what, what thing is, this story meant so much to them. It was a huge adventure. As you, you know, when you're young, you have an adventure like that, and it sort of changed everyone in that film, one way or the other. They were changed by this experience. Philippe, more than anyone, I think. I think what makes a, a, a great documentary film is the quality of, of the interviewing, essentially. The interviewee is such an important part of that. And you know, we often forget they're telling often the filmmaker and sometimes you get the sense that they don't like the filmmaker and, and the film has a different kind of vibe to it for that reason. I think in that case, all the contributors kind of liked me or, or trusted me enough to be very sort of candid and unfiltered. So it becomes very emotional for all of them, you know, particularly the regrets some of them had afterwards, uh, which become an interesting kind of coda to, to what life is like. You know, every adventure you ever have, it comes to an end and you're different at the end of that adventure. and, and and it's bittersweet, you know. Did that? Did you have that experience? I think like one of the, I mean, there's so many magnificent things about it, but that sense of melancholy and the fact that, you know, in a literal and metaphorical sense, no one will ever reach those heights again, you know, like that's what happened to the crew, to Philippe. And mm. I'm wondering if you experienced that same thing, um, you know, sort of as the film came to its completion or after getting the Oscar or did you did you have that same sort of postpartum Well, I think blues? like you, I'm sure what, what I do is I, I, just, I just get busy doing something else. So when I finished Man I barely had a moment to, to breathe before I was doing a, a, a show called, a, a TV film called Dread Riding, which was a trilogy of feature length films. And what keeps you sane as a filmmaker is because you're all in on something. You know, that def definition of intelligence being your mind is occupied almost to its limit. And filmmaking is that for me. So when you stop doing that, there's a kind of void in your life that can make you very depressed. It's not so much about the film being over. It's more about what do I think about now. You know, th there's a void which has been filled for two years by this endless sort of you know, fiddling and and constructing of a film. So I didn't have any sense at all of that because firstly the film was surprising. I, it, was, it was a TV project. It started as being a TV project. And it gradually became a, a very low-funded feature doc. You know, very... These days the, our budget will be laughable what Netflix will give to a, a Talking Heads documentary, you know, to, compared to what we had to make that film. So there was no kind of postpartum depression, first because I moved on to something else. And secondly, I was just gobsmacked by the way the film took off. Sundance was where it started, and it just scraped into Sundance. There was apparently a bit of a conflict about, in, within Sundance, I heard this later on, about the dramatizations in the film, and there was a sort of sense that they weren't proper, and this, wasn't a, this was sort of cheating, or wasn't part of a documentary realm. So from what I gather, the film almost didn't get in. And it, it was it was shown on the last possible day. It was shown on the Tuesday. If you've been to Sundance, all the people there for the for the first for the first, but then they all fuck off to. They're, they're to gone Hollywood. by Sunday. <laughs> they're gone. So by Tuesday, our premiere is in this out of the way cinema in Park City, small one. It's like a really kind of. It felt this is what I felt. It's really grudging. Okay, well we'll let this film. We'll show it. You know, at the very end, it's a world documentary. It'll go out on Tuesday. And so then the history of the film becomes this delightful, well, people seem to like it in the screen, but from that screen onwards, it built this sort of wonderful 
honest, pure word of mouth. And there was no, no reviews of the film at all. No one reviewed it until the end of the festival. So it was a genuine word of mouth success. And one of my happiest moments in my life has been on a bus in Sundance after the second screening. No one knew who I was. And people were talking about your film in this way that was just so, like you couldn't have scripted it better, you know. And we won, I think, two prizes there too. So once that had happened, I was then, you know, I was satisfied. That was that was for me the, the extent that of was my... Enough. And right, you got what really you came was. for. It kind of what it really was. And, and, you know, I'd struggled as a filmmaker before then. I'd sort of lost my way a bit. as a, I'd sort of given up documentaries for a while and made a feature film that no one seemed to like very much. And I was sort of lost a bit. And so this film, you know, I enjoyed making the film. I, I like the film. Mostly I don't like the way I finish. Mostly I think I just see my mistakes. And, of course, there are plenty in this one too. But overall, I thought... It is a great story, and it seems to you know, it seems to be told pretty well in this film. So I kind of quite liked it, and so I had a good, I had that feeling plus the Sundance experience. Then it sort of went on, you know, to be to other the storm awards. the worlds. So can I let me rewind to I, I want to go back to the the sort of the shooting of the interview with Philippe and the decision to let him move around and consequently the sort of production challenges involved in that, you know, where you're lighting a certain amount of, uh, you know, screen space where you know that he's going, and will he stay within it? And, you know, and do you end up doing retakes of particular moment? Because I remember this moment early on in the film when he's sort of, you know, looking up and, and telling a story and you can tell it's shot you know, from above. And, and I remember when I was working with Igor um, shooting the 7-5, he kept saying to me, like, there are these moments that you know are definitely going to go into the film. And, like, that's a, that's a moment that we need to sort of get coverage on or get from a different angle or get in a more dynamic way. And it, it was an idea that had never occurred to me. And so I'm curious, you know, the the actual the methodology of the shooting of the interview. Yes, there was a bit of that, no question. I mean, there were certain stories I knew were certainly going to be in the film. And what we did was we did we did it in sort of, we did a, a very straight sit-down interview first, which I insisted upon because we didn't want to do that. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, well, you have to. So I wanted to get that, that intimacy. You know, you're telling me this story, you're telling me, the audience, this story. It has to come from you to me personally. So we thought a lot about that and eventually agreed to do it and did it very well. I said, day two, you do what the fuck you like. You know, we're ready. Whatever you want to do. I mean, at one point, he ran out the door. We'll chase you. Yeah, we did. And we didn't end up using it, but he wanted to run out the of, of his little camp, his little, I don't know what he calls it, his um, his man cave, this sort of construct he built. His bunker. His so certain of those scenes we shot, let him do what he wanted to do. Go and use the theatre part that, if you want to use this curtain. Wall. So we did set up some of that stuff. Having shot it, Honestly, first, that we then picked up things because you, that's your job, I think, as a documentary filmmaker. You know, it is your job to tell the story as best you can and to provide the audience with shots and angles and information that you think they need to know. So I have no problem with constructing things. I, I think you have to. I, th I, I think it's I think it's requisite, you know, to, because like it's not merely the story itself. It's how the story is told and making it immersive and dynamic. So I think it's 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 incumbent upon us to do that. Well, I think it's true. One of the things I liked about Odessa so much was it, it's a movie. You know, it's like a movie, and it just happens to have these characters who are themselves, you know, or, or this 
performative version of themselves, but maybe that's who they are anyway. And so I always felt, you know, The Thin Blue Line was a big film for me because it was the one that showed you how, how documentaries could be, could be real cinema in a sort of more complicated way than just a verite film could be. Um, so that film was really important to me because it showed you, you know, the power of scoring, the power of creating your own imagery, the, the power of pacing a film as if it were a dramatic film as opposed to a documentary. And I think you did that really well in Odessa because it kind of clips along. It's exciting. It's like a kind of movie, you know, and, and the visually it's exciting too. Why don't we? Why, of course, there are those arguments hopefully are falling away completely now. But I used to get a lot of stick for this when I was a younger filmmaker about reconstructions and, you know, how dare you and that's not proper filmmaking and there's nothing honest in that. And I, I think, well, the moment you make a cut in a verity film, you're intervening. You know, this is f foolish. Why don't we try and make, as Errol Morris showed me, you know, films that can occupy that big screen environment? And, you know, increasingly many people, have, not just me, but I've done this successfully now. Um, but that, and I think One Day in September is another good example of that, a film that brilliant, brilliant. worked really well in, in the cinema and better than it would have on television. You know, it felt like it had the, the power and authority that cinema can give a film. And I think your film had that too. And I think that was my ambition for Man on Why. I was like, okay, let's make this into a movie that you stick it up there and it's going to, you know, kind of barrel along. It'll be scored with Michael Nyman, you know, and let's elevate this and make it big, you know? Well, you know what's so interesting that, that that's a couple of things that struck me in, in rewatching it again was you also have these moments where you are trusting the audience and trusting the images. You know, cinema at the end of the day is image and music as opposed to words. That That's mm. the sort of fundamental, like, distinction. The purity of it, and yeah. The purity of it. And I remember, you know, sequences, even very early on, when we're just getting sort of the poetry of, of you know, the construction of, of the Twin Towers, um, you're trusting archival imagery and a, a ravishing score, and it's not rushed. It's not, you don't need people talking in that moment. You're able to sort of allow the cinema to breathe. And I thought that was so, uh, like, that's what makes it a film as opposed to a, um, you know, talking head, soundbite driven. Documentaries do this quite often in a way that I find sort of, Sort of slightly annoying is that you, you they tell you something visually and they tell it to you afterwards in case you haven't got it we'll tell you to you verbally as well have something to describe what they've just you've just seen and i always thought that was kind of you know disrespecting the audience you know if it's a visual medium and if it's if you can distill an idea into an image either in a feature film or in a, a document then you should do that and you should you should trust it um because all these you know you, you deal in the land of exec producers and you always have them on your films they always want you to to be more expositional somehow or be more obvious or to make a point and make it another time just so everyone's got it. And it always struck me that executives seem to be the most least trusting of the audience of anybody. I trust them so much more than executives do to get something and to understand I, I, something. You know? I, I, feel I feel exactly the same way because like audiences are so sophisticated and they're having this experience on any beautiful narrative feature film that they're watching or, t or you know, sort of artfully done television series. So why can't they have it in nonfiction? Yet there is this culture of this sort of mania for 
uh, excessive clarity in the like you know exec world and, it, and it's a real it's a real battle to find the line that like your movie actually gets financed and seen but you retain the respect for the audience and, and the sort of subtlety. Um, well, exactly. I think documentaries, people seem to assume they need to be full of information because they're documentaries. You know, that's the genre. Well, actually, no. You know, the, the, the best documentary films are always image-based for me. One of my favourite documentaries is, is um, by a French, film, French horror filmmaker called uh, Franju, called The Blood of the Beasts. La Sang des Bêtes. It was made in 1948. I don't know the film. It goes right in my queue. I mean, it's like, it's a half hour documentary of a French abattoir in 1948. And it's just extraordinary. And it's, there's no commentary. There's no interviews. There's nothing. Not that I remember. Maybe there is. But all I remember is the imagery and the, what the imagery suggests is so brilliantly powerful it's an amazing film but not not as well known as it should be um but that, that's another example of a film that that is all image based and i think you know what i try and do is to tell if i can stories with pictures as opposed to words and allow those pictures to to carry narrative exposition and ideas as opposed to someone spoon feeding some little moral at the end of them or some expositional statement says, well, you haven't, you haven't got it now, I'll tell you what it is now. You know, I'll explain it to you. Um, and all the best documentary filmmakers don't do that. Well, and it applies equally to feature filmmaking. Like once you realize, okay, the intent of this scene is there by the sort of performance direction, you know, uh, the subtlety of an actor's eyes, fuck the words like if you can cut the words you don't need the words i'm doing a feature now and that's exactly what we've been doing literally today is trying to cut down a bit more dialogue so that the actors performances can carry the emotional weight of of, of the story much better than words can you know um so it is i mean we live in interesting times with documentaries i find myself kind of going back and forth and wanting to infuse kind of the technique you know the authenticity of documentaries into the sort of feature filmmaking and then to imbue the you know the stylistic um you know visual storytelling of narrative films in the documentaries and that, well, that's that exactly what you know isn't that interesting because that's exactly what i've tried to do too and it's it's something that the dialogue between the two genres is really important it's been i could man on where i I'd made a, one feature before then which wasn't terribly successful um and it, it really helped me understand you know, how to do dramatic reconstructions better. So they were actually based on character and objective, you know, as opposed to just illustrations of things. Talk about the reconstructions because they're so brilliantly and so elegantly done. Like at what point in the process are you beginning to, you know, how much editing have you done based on the interviews and the archival that exists? Well, my rule has always been, um, and still is, that you sh everything is constructed first. You know, you have a kind of skeleton and fairly refined. It's a, almost, the, almost to the point of fine cutting. And then you've exposed, hopefully, in the structure of the film where you need illustration, better still, dramatizations, better still, you know, clearly defined visual sequences that advance the story. With Man and Work, it was always the idea I was going to do this. And I built in, you know, notions already in the rough cut that there was gonna be stuff here, here, and here. But I scripted it when I had a basically a, 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 a fairly advanced rough cut. 
how long have you been cutting? So, so how deep in? Are you a year into editing? Are you six months no, into editing? Well, this, this is, dare I say, I, I'm not a long, I don't spend long in the cutting them. My memoir was cut in three months. Um, wow. I cut a little bit, I cut it some of it myself. You know, I tend to, I used to edit all my own work. And I, when I work with an editor, I often do, a, I always do the first cut myself, the first assembly, because it means you know the material, you've gone through all the interviews, you've, you've assembled something. So I guess when I say three months, that was how long we spent in the cutting room. And usually I shoot things with a sort of idea of where I'm going with it. So um, none of my films have been, I, I often think, what the fuck do you do for two years in editing? <laughs> uh, I spend forever, I'm the opposite. I spend forever and I'll be breaking it apart until the very last second and then sort of reconstructing it because I have, like some people's process is more uh, sort of, mine requires a lot of destruction. I have to like build it, tear it all down, rebuild it to, to sort of explore everything. I know the thought, then the one, Dear friends is like that, that he'll get something that's half works and he'll just bin it and start again. And I, I can see that that would drive me mad, I think. But I, I, I respect that. And I think perhaps if I spent longer, maybe my films would be better. As it comes to a point, I kind of exhaust my interest in something. But to answer your question, you know, everything was pretty, all the dramatizations in the film are, are, are voiced by the actual people. And they're telling you the story as they, as they so I try to be very, so specific to what people told me. So I really followed when I scripted it. Well, I didn't script, obviously, dialogue. I scripted actions. And the idea was always to make it into a kind of French caper movie, you know. Um, and I looked at certain French films, you know, to, to kind of inform that tone of it, that it was going to be playful and like, it, like a kind of French heist movie, essentially. Um, but they were very carefully... Script. We had no money, so I had to every shot that I shot is in the film. But it was all shot prescriptively. This needs to last for five seconds. Okay, I'll give you ten seconds of this, but it'll last for five seconds. So everything was really carefully, like a jigsaw puzzle. I knew what the pieces need to look like and how they're going to fit into the finished film. So it was all very carefully, in some detail. You know, which way the camera would move left to right. I, I, split screens. I knew about those, so I thought, okay, the camera needs to move this well on that split screen and that way on that split screen. You know, there's dialogue between split screens I had to understand how they're going how they're to work together, you know, and to shoot that intentionally, it was all of a sudden very intimidating. So when I shot the reconstructions, they were in the film with a week, the film was done. They literally just slotted in. You know, all the scoring was pretty much there. I'd scored them already, more or less. So that reconstruction process had to be efficient because of budget reasons. And the, the way I like to do things is to do things with real intention. I'm not a speculative filmmaker. So... That's kind of the way I work is really quite intentionally, which is not very spontaneous. And documentaries maybe should be more spontaneous. It gives it a precision and an elegance that I think is um, sort of, you know, Peter Berg, the filmmaker, once said to me, you know, an audience needs to be taken by the hand in the first couple mm. of minutes and mm. made to feel this is someone who knows where they're taking me totally. and I'm going to a clear de de destination. Mm. And I thought, man, that's exactly right, isn't it? And totally. I mean, exactly. I sort of judge a film or a script for that matter on the first five minutes. I mean, not that you're going to give up on it. You, you think, well, am I in good hands here? You know, does this person, you know, I know what, 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 how films are made, as do you do. So you're a bit more clued up than most audiences. You sort of know if in the first five to minutes there's some 
sloppy work or it starts five times so many films start five times so many, so many films end five times you know you kind of feel like yeah absolutely so that confidence of saying trust me i'm going to tell you a story here it is that's a really important sort of something i've, I've sort of known instinctively f from the get-go but not always practiced what i understood the um when you're shooting the reconstructions, going back to that for a minute, how many shoot days do you have? What film stock are you shooting on? Like, and, and how are you making the decisions? Okay, this should be, like, this needs to be black and white. I'm going to not show faces here. Like, to talk to me about the sort of grammar and rules that you set yourself going into the shoot and, and the amount of resources you had to do it. You know, we committed to black and white. It wasn't, let's pretend it's going to be in black and white by shooting color. We shot in black and white film stock. We tested for certain stocks. So it was black and white always. We had very little time to do it. It was very stressful and pressurized. What I managed to do was somehow or other, I managed to black and white. There was two buildings, one building that went up very quickly after 9-11. Uh, I think it wasn't the, the, the Freedom Tower. It was this other building that went up very close to, to, to ground zero. And it, it was just like, they just finished it. So I managed to kind of charm my way into this building. There was no one occupying the building at the time. It was just, just been finished, just like the World Trade Center when Philippe went in. And it had the same kind of views you could get of the Manhattan skyline looking uptown. It was it was perfect. And I'd sort of obviously car I did a casting and I cast people that looked, looked somewhat like the characters enough, you know, to get away with it. It wasn't supposed to be this is realistic, you know, it's supposed to be a representation. Impressionistic, right. And the idea was to make the film less and less realistic the further into the story we got. So by the time they get to the top of the towers, it's just a a cheap Brooklyn studio with a few fancy lights and a bit of fog. You know, it's not supposed to be real. It's supposed to be more and more unreal. Largely because of budget reasons, but also that was an aesthetic principle. Okay, if we start being realistic capable by the end we've gone to the moon essentially we've gone to the top of the towers and we're now in dream world yeah and somebody's driven by resources you know you have to make the virtue of what you've got and what you can afford to do you know robert zemeckis spent 200 million dollars doing this yep yep i've got ten thousand dollars what, what, what how do i do it you know um, well, and yours is so much more, and, and God love Zemeckis, but like, and yours is so much more affecting because there is this, uh, I mean, A, I think it's that rare joy of a true story sort of perfectly told, but B, like, sometimes those constraints when you don't rage against them are the greatest blessing that you could possibly have. Well, indeed, have. I think your limitations, your boundaries, I mean, it's true of every film I've made, that the boundaries of the budget and the boundaries of time you know, create all kinds of pressures, but they also, they need an imaginative response to them. You need to respond to them. Okay, how do I, how do I do this with these restrictions? And, you know, less is often more. So these limitations, we face them as filmmakers at every project. It's how you respond to them, you know, and, or, and the thing is not to be too ambitious, you know, better to get one great shot than four mediocre. That was always my principle. It could be one great image here. We had a, a a special effects budget that was kind of small but it was i use it on one shot the whole budget and there's one shot it's not very particularly special effectsy where i wanted to just look down over the i so see you, you wanted to yes, creep yes, over yes it's all a kind of model shot and all the money every penny of that special effects budget went on that one shot which lasts three seconds but it was so crucial to know the stakes of it. And at Sundance, when everyone gasped, we thought, okay, that was money well spent. Yep. Everyone yep. went on that shot. And yep. you know, some people won't even remember it, but I remember it because it was 
it was where all the money went, you know. So that was a very conscious choice. Okay, if I could deliver one shot here that shows you the vertigo of this, the, the kind of stakes, this could be you, you know, leaning over the edge. Um, so again, that's an example of, you know, there's a limitation, how best do I have five or six special effect shots or just one that kind of nails Perfect, something that I think is so important yeah, perfectly to, used. To, to, to the stakes of his life on this tightrope. So I have I have two last questions for you, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll let you get back either to the edit bay or having a life. But I, but I have to ask these last two questions, which is, um, and I have to get back to the edit bay myself. Um, there were certain moments in um, call it the narration, and I and I'm curious whether they were extracted from the interviews themselves or if they were particular lines from Philippe's book that you knew you wanted to either bridge a, a specific moment. For example, when we're talking about kind of descending into memory, you know, and he's he's recalling like, uh, I forget what it is, but sort of a, you know, an early formative childhood moment and we're going out of the present narrative. Was that, did you excerpt that from the interviews, or was that ta passages taken from books, or was it voiceover, or how did you how did you do? Well, that? actually, that's a very very good question. In a way, you obviously know the film in some detail. I got towards during the edit, I figured I needed one or two sort of moments from him that were reflective and slightly different. Um, so I got him to read one or two extracts from his book, and I also scripted something or suggested something he could put in his own words. So there's two or three occasions in the film where that that's recorded on my, I think it was on, a, on my phone or something. It, it wasn't done professionally. It was done ad hoc. I mean, he just left it that way. We could have done it professionally again later. But I thought, I like it like this. I had kind Performance of this, this, is right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So there were those interventions where I thought I needed something else just to kind of, to open up an idea or to have a different tone as well because his tone is quite you know it's all very hyper animated he, and boisterous yeah he, he does not he gallops when he talks he doesn't canter you know so i wanted to so that's an interesting question because that, that was indeed there is an intervention of quite you know intentional voiceover at two or three moments in the film and you want the few people would, would realize that that's what's going on there so well done for noticing um, okay, so the other question, I've been like burning with these, so I'm so glad to finally get to ask you. Um, the archival materials that exist and the sort of um, acquisition, harnessing, discovery of that, like, d when are you aware of that material? How do you get hold? Like, what is the process? Because it, well, that's, that's such a great it's question. It's astonishing material. Yeah, it's astonishing material. So I meet Philippe. You know, we have a series of encounters in New York City, and then I go to his place in Chopin. He's always talking about this archive that he's got, uh, but he won't show it to me. So this is going on for months and months. I'm dying to see it. What, what, one time he shows me the film cans, so there they are, but I can't see them yet. So he's testing me out and in making sure I'm the right person, and not. And he knows. And the more I want to see them, the more he does want to show them to me. So every time I go, I've got this agenda. Okay, can I get the film cans from him this time? Will he? But so I get as close as seeing the cans. They do exist, but you won't, you won't really have them. So, so we do. I think we do the interview, and that all goes pretty well. He enjoys the attention of the interview. Enjoys the interview itself. I think you know, that went very well. Those two or three days with him in Chacan, and so on the back of that, I'm finally allowed to take the film cans with me. But I have to sign 
he always made it, he was serious about doing it in blood. He said, well, no one will make you sign in blood for this. And he was serious about this. He wasn't like a joke. He meant blood. He actually wanted <laughs> the blood, to, you know, that I wanted to give. But he backed away because he trusted me by this point. So I was able to take them. I had to sign a big, long form that was written by him, you know. Which I'm sure it's an amazing it was, document. It was, like, it was like, I will kill your children if, if you, literally, if you, don't, if you don't give me these films back. So I take them, these film cans. And I have a look, okay, it's definitely colour. I can see that. I think, you know, this is, there's neck here, this is great. And there's print here, this is good. So I go to, I take these, drive away with these film cans in my boot, having not signed in blood, but almost. Then the next day I go to a, a rental, a facility's house in New York to, to screen them. And I start screening them and I think, fucking hell, this is amazing. Because they're shot by Boonwell's cameraman. Somehow, wow. Philippe, Philippe manages to, late Boonwell, who mostly worked in France, had his cameraman, I can't remember his name now, but he's on all, all his late films, he's Boonwell's cameraman. And he's good, I and mean, obviously he's very good. So I don't know how Philippe managed to get this guy, but eventually, like most people in Philippe's life, uh, the cameraman gets, He conjured him. He conjured he, he, him. He conjured him up. So I start seeing this footage, and at this point I've shot interviews, I've got other bits of archive, you know, of this, that, and the other. And I see this amazing, beautiful, colour neg archive. It looks gorgeous. It's shot, I think, on 35mm. You know, it's just lovely. It's got this gorgeous technicolour quality to it. They're all so young, they're all so beautiful. And they're all gambling in fields and running around and like kids. It, without that archive, the film would be a very different... It's a to the tone of the adventure is in that archive. It sure that's, is. Where, that's where it all comes from. These young people and their playfulness and their, their bickering and this, both the frivolity of it and also the seriousness of it. A man's life's at stake here, after all. There's a very good chance. And everyone I spoke to, apart from Jean-Louis, thought there's a possibility. That, I mean, certainly one of the Americans thought he was definitely going to die and backed out. You know, so you've got this, this incredibly beautiful, seductive archive. That's when I knew I had a film. That's when I thought, okay, it became so special and I couldn't believe I remember going back to my partner and saying you know, she, she said what, what, what's happened you look, you look like you look like you've seen God I said well I kind of have in a way I've seen I've seen the God-like countenance and that was that for me was probably the biggest turning point in my professional life but it didn't come it came you know I had to, I had to work for that one at some kept, cost as it always yeah, does <laughs> yeah, at least I went to Shokan maybe ten times with that agenda and nine times you know, I didn't get, I didn't, didn't achieve my objective. And so, you know, it came later on, but in a sense that really gave me a whole new, you know, certain turning points in the film when either things go very badly wrong and you're fucked or they go very badly. Somehow we make our own luck in certain projects. Beautiful, beautiful story. Um, very last question for you, which is nonfiction. Are you finished or is there another nonfiction film in your future? Oh, no, I, I mean... It's been one of those things that I'm just waiting for the right idea. I mean, you know, it's been almost 10 years. I made Project Mim um, on the back of Man on Wire. I remember vividly, yep. Uh, and that was a substantial, difficult film, 18 months of my life on that. And then I sort of went back to, to, to dramatic films and sort of stayed there for, for, for 10 years, I guess. But I'm just waiting for the idea to come along. You know, whatever that idea is, if it's like... You know, when, when you find it, you know what it is. So I've sort of ceased to become a, a sort of practicing documentary filmmaker. 
because I, you know, I've done more drama since. I've made one or two films that have been quite successful in the dramatic world. I'm just finishing off one now as well, a dr drama film. But I'm, I'm just waiting for the idea. You know, I'm just waiting for that one to come along that you just have to do. Because I love documentaries. I, I watch more documentaries than I do f fiction, to be honest. I, I find them just more sort of world and mind expanding often than, than drama. Um, so I'm just waiting for the idea. I'd, I'd love every day you look for it. You know, I'm sure we're the same. Everybody always looking for the next idea. You're always open to that idea. And sometimes you're looking for it actively. Sometimes it's, you're waiting for it to come and announce itself to you. So um, I'm just waiting till to make it, you know, because I, I really want to make another film. I feel like I could, I've learned so much by making dramatic films. I've got so much love to give to whatever that project will be. I just need to find what it is, you know. So n not in the least, I really want to make another documentary um, and I'm always looking. I'm always looking for it. Well, on that note, um, may the universe uh, hear that um, that call for it and grant you whatever that next film may be, because you're an absolute master and it's a a joy and a pleasure and and so instructive and so joyous to have the chance to to speak with you. Well, indeed. Well, well thank you, Joe. It's been it's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks again. Cheers. Bye. A warm thank you to James Marsh for making the masterpiece, Man on Wire. And a big thank you for Philip Petit for being the man brave enough to walk that wire. Thank you to everyone else who poured their hearts into making this masterful film. I'm Tiller Russell. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz, our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. This show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>